Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. I'm so excited for today's podcast with the incredible Lane Beachley, who's widely regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. She's actually the only surfer, male or female, to claim six successive world titles. And she then went on to win a seventh in 2006 before retiring in 2008. Now, her sporting accolades are too many to name, but a couple of highlights. Uh, She was in the 2006 Surfing Hall of Fame, 2011 Australian Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, She was an athlete liaison at the 2012 Olympic Games. Uh, And she's been recognised and awarded the third greatest Australian female athlete of all time behind Dawn Fraser and Betty Cuthbert. Uh, In 2015, alongside the Australian Day Honours List, she was awarded with an Office of the Order of Australia for her distinguished service to the community through her wide-ranging support of charity organisations and as a mentor for women in sport. So an incredibly accomplished individual, nowadays one of the country's most highly regarded motivational speakers and also the founder and a director of her own Lane Beachley Aim for the Stars Foundation, which provides grants and support to women and girls right across the country who are in pursuit of their own endeavours. One of the things you may or may not know about Lane is she's a personal development junkie. So the work that she's done on herself, the way that she reflects on her career, her goals, the approach that she's taken to life is so considered and incredibly inspiring and empowering. And I love her for the vulnerability and the authenticity of how she tells her own story and how willing she is to share in the hope that it will help and inspire and empower others. So allow me to hand over to our coffee pod with Lane Beachley. Lane, the legend Beachley, I'm stoked to be getting to do a coffee pod with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome, Holly. Well, listen, I've, I've read, I mean, I've, I had the privilege of knowing you for a couple of years, but I've been reading all about you and I've loved the fact that I've got to learn lots of little bit tidbits that I didn't even know about your journey and everything you've done thus far. Um, and I was reading a bit about sort of your first surf down at age four at Manly and, and the first days of you dipping your toes in the water. Was it from that moment that you knew you were going to be a surfer or was there a significant moment later in childhood that perhaps set you on the path? There was no definitive moment in my life where I knew I was going to be a surfer. I just fell in love with surfing. You know, the, the classic cliche is, is your passions find you and definitely surfing found me, you know, um, Having the, the distinct advantage of growing up in Manly Beach and, and having my dad as a surfer, my older brother as a surfer, and any young girl who grows up with an older brother that they do something, you want to be able to do it better, which I can confidently say I do. It's um, It was just part of my childhood that became part of my adulthood that now have becomes a, a very important and integral part of my life. So I'm very grateful that my dad introduced me to surfing at such a young age when I'm fearless. At them, you know, All kids are fearless at that age. We're more curious than fearful. And um, and I was very grateful that I grew up in such a, a supportive household that encouraged me to go and be a tomboy. So what age did it become competitive for you? How early was it that you were actually starting to be on the circuit, so to speak? Well, I started competing when I was 14 
I didn't actually graduate from my foamy onto a fiberglass surfboard until I was 13. I reflect back on that time, I realise how many limitations and and rules and (laughs) stipulations I placed around what I was going to do and when I was going to do it by. And so I think I decided that, you know, 16, it was a mature age and that's when I was going to progress onto a fiberglass surfboard. But it was encouraged to, I was encouraged to do that a little sooner. So by the time I was 13, one of the, because I went to an all girls high school, one of the girls that joined, that was in a year above me was a surfer and her and I became, you know, like-minded mates so we could talk about surfing and I actually bought one of her boards. So my first secondhand fiberglass surfboard was from a, a girl who ultimately became a mentor. And, um, and then she, um, she became my surfing buddy. And it was uh, really cool to be able to go out and hang and surf with her. I'm interested because now female professional surfing is such a norm. It's hard to imagine that it ever wasn't at the competitive level and the equity that it now is. What was it like being a girl on tour back when you were 14? Well, so yes, as I was saying, I I started competing when I was 14. I actually came dead last in the first few events I competed in. But fortunately, they were either like a charity event or a board riders club event. I actually didn't start competing in the big tour events until I was 15. And once again, I came dead last when I did that too. I remember hovering around the women's events when they came to Manly in North Narrabeen because that's as close as I could get. And uh, I remember just looking around going, where are the women? (laughs) Because I felt like we'd lost the benefit of gender. They were so hungry and desperate to earn that recognition and respect from their male counterparts that they acted like men, dressed like men, tried to surf like men. We just lost the benefit of gender. And I'm thinking, I thought there was meant to be a women's tour. And, and there were some beautiful women on tour, but they just weren't embracing their femininity. So at first I felt like the tour had an identity crisis, quite honestly. I didn't didn't really know what it was standing for or what it was representing. And, um, and it wasn't until the early 90s when Lisa Anderson really broke that mould. You know, she embraced her femininity and her beauty and her grace and her flow and her style and, and she went out and surfed the waves like a girl. And uh, I think it was the first time they started printing sh- printing shirts with surf like a girl. You know, Lisa clearly demonstrated what that can look like and feel like. I was walking through the airport today on my way to travelling interstate and a guy came up to me and basically said, you know, everything you've done for women's surfing, I'm just so grateful for to you. You know, you've done such an amazing job and you've really changed the landscape for women in surfing. And I'm thinking, that's a beautiful thing to say. Yeah, it's lovely. But then I also res- I respect what my predecessors went through mm-hmm. to provide me with that platform that enabled me to then go on and change the landscape of women's surfing. And that's all came back down to my own vision of what I wanted women's surfing to be. And I always wanted it to emulate women's tennis. So tell me, how early did that goal kick in that I'm going to be a world champion? Is there a definitive moment you can remember where that light bulb and that focus switched on with that degree of specificity? Yes, and that was when I was eight years old. So it all goes back to being told I was adopted. My dad sat me down and told me I was adopted. And it's funny, you know, we all know perception starts in the brain. It doesn't start with the ears or the eyes. And so the way that we see things or hear things can be completely manufactured to appear differently in our, in our brains. So when my dad said, we love you and, and we're so glad that we have you and, and that we're, you know, you're my little girl, all I heard was you're been rejected you've been abandoned and you're undeserving of love and that knowledge and that experience is what actually sparked that desire to become the best in the world because in when I was sitting in the couch and it felt like I was being swallowed by the couch I felt so 
worthless, I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? I can't stay in this state. It's just too uncomfortable. So what am I going to do? I know if I become a world champion, everyone will love me. And that's what drove me to become this, you know, groundbreaking <laughs> uh, world champion because my expectation of life or my how I had defined success was all based on a feeling, not so much a definition of achievement. And so I never chose to feel like I was enough until I had become what I deemed to be successful, which wasn't a one-times world champion. It was a six-times consecutive world champion, which meant I was the best of the best. Now, it wasn't until I was 15 that I became that I chose to become a, a world champion surfer, uh, and that's when I clearly put the stake in the sand. I won my first regional scholastic event and went on to win the state titles, had a horrible time in the national titles, joined the Pro Tour fresh out of high school, and then it took me eight years to win my first world title. It's an incredible journey. To have that level of conviction in yourself at such a young age, it, it, again, in the face of really traumatic news, though, that, that there's a pretty – incredible drive that sits beneath that really in you like a, a fire and a determination absolutely and yesterday I was asked do you think you would have achieved what you would achieve without that drive especially your first world title and it's difficult to answer because it's it's how I achieved it I now know that there are different ways to achieve success and as you I think is what Steve Wozniak said to Steve Jobs in the in the movie success is binary you can be successful and respected I felt like I actually cost myself a lot of happiness, a lot of respect, uh, a lot of joy and a lot of great friendships because of my sheer determination and compassion of a tiger shark. I was so hungry and so fierce and so determined and, and everybody in my way or everybody along the way were in my way. You know, I was on a mission and I, and I basically I just destroyed so many great things because I was so fiercely determined and driven that I now realize that you don't have to succeed through that mindset. And, I, and what I do is that I continuously seek evidence of that to prove that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, most of the time we're looking to prove ourselves right but I actually want to prove myself wrong I want to disprove that belief because I know that's a survival mode mechanism and because we're constantly seeking evidence of what we believe sometimes our beliefs don't serve us I love that for a couple of reasons like uh, and I'm interested in it how how did you have the self-awareness at that point to go hold on this formula doesn't work anymore and it delivered six world titles a lot of people would be super superstitious and say don't mess with a winning formula this is working hold on to it uh, what was the moment that kind of prompted you to go actually I need to go about this differently I started to listen to the symptoms of my body I started to realize that I was breaking down mentally physically emotionally and spiritually I was running on empty I was fueled by adrenaline and and there was nothing to fill the tank anymore and so I had to start honoring my body because I was asking so much of it and yet it kept breaking down and uh, I realized that I needed to do things differently. Yet I chose to ignore that again and I went off and went to compete for my seventh world title and uh, halfway through the year um, I tore my meniscus and my medial ligament in my right knee and then everything else started to get a little bit creaky and, <laughs> and then halfway through 2005 I was doing a photo shoot and I went to put my board down at seven o'clock in the morning so I hadn't all warmed up and something went snap between my shoulder blades and I went and got an MRI and it showed that I had a very severe herniation a disc herniation in my neck around the C5 C6 area that had so, had gradually worn onto my spinal cord and it was now severing 80% of it. So I was given two options, either retire or get surgery, and both of them seemed um, pretty 
logical at the time, but neither of them appealed to me. And, you know, I was this close to winning my seventh world title and I, I decided that um, I needed to get a third opinion and that doctor suggested that I'm young and fit and strong enough to allow my body to heal itself, so you've got to give it time. And I said, how much time have I got? And he said, however much time it takes. So you're going to have to learn patience. And then that's actually when I started learning the three Ps to success, right? Patience, passion and perseverance. <laughs> it taught me the value of honing my attention and intention and retention into healing mm. instead of into driving, striving, succeeding, achieving. I diverted all of that back into healing and and healing my body and, and healing my soul. And so I I basically dedicated myself to healing my body as and how and dedicate and allowed myself to take as long as it was possibly going to take. So ideally I didn't want it to take more than six months, but it actually took a little bit longer because my intention was to come back and compete again. There was no need to prove anything any longer. I'd pretty much proven enough <laughs> that, you know, to become the most successful surfer in history. I've proven that I've got a trophy room to prove it as well so coming back and winning my sixth world title taught me a lot about trusting in ease and grace and flow and taught me a lot about trusting in the natural way of things and also making me realize that what I resist persists so I always had a sense of self-awareness but not until I had lost everything that meant everything to me such as my health my well-being, my competitive career, my ability to surf, some friendships. Once all of that was gone, that's when you start to assess what's important to you and the first thing you have to rebuild is yourself. Now, you've picked up the topic of self-work already and it's something I really wanted to talk to you about because it's something I've deeply admired about you since we first met. I don't think I know anyone who's done more work on themselves than you have. Is that something you've always appreciated the importance of and been passionate about? And has there been any particular experience or learning that's been especially profound and has particularly changed how you see yourself? You know, I introduced you to an author called Louise Hay and uh, I remember being first introduced to that in my mid-twenties and I remember reading through it going, this is a crock of shit and my competitors beat me and I'm supposed to be grateful for that? Like, come on, you're on drugs, woman. I'm fierce. I'm determined. I've got to win. Don't you know how important this is to me? And it wasn't until I hit my mid-thirties and I and everything was stripped away that I actually opened myself up to this possibility that that life can be filled with love and joy and it can happen but it doesn't happen until you fill yourself with love and joy mm. so it starts with the self and it was actually after I won my sixth world title one of my best friends said to me do you think you've been so driven because you're adopted and that resonated with me so strongly that yeah, I went wow. yes and that was the moment where it all clicked. I went, I need to look back within. I got to stop looking external. I got to stop seeking reassurance. I got to stop seeking success to to feel like I'm deserving of love. And I actually need to start learning to love myself and start to be a little bit kinder and more compassionate to myself. And then then I will allow others in. But I had such a fear of success, which seems so funny for someone so successful, right? I know. And and I didn't become aware of it until I won my first world title until I became successful. The first moment where I became aware of, of my driving, my negative driving forces, such as a fear of rejection, was when I did a rebirthing session back in 1997, which was the year before I won my first world title. When I did that session, it had such a profound emotional impact on me because emotions stored in the body cause dis-ease and dysfunction. And so... Mm. 
when he, when I laid down and did this session, and all it is is just a cyclical breath that you, when you get in touch with your breath, you can't think, and when you're not thinking, you're you can't suppress anything. Your body will just transmute and 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 process emotions and release it in a really free, safe environment. And so when I did this, I was I was profoundly distraught. Like I was sobbing on the floor in the fetal position for a good 45 minutes, unaware as to what was causing all this pain and heartache. And I realized it was just my fear of rejection. And the fear of rejection was ruling my life. The thing is, you can become aware of something, but until you actually take ownership of it, it's not going to change. So my fear of rejection ruled my life for those first six world titles. And the way it plays out is that you either reject people or you behave in a way that gives them very sound grounds to reject you. That's exactly what I did. I was very successful at being rejected or rejecting. Fortunately, people don't remember how you won. They just remember that you did. And breeds are actually something you've really taken up. I mean, they've become a part of your your weekly, monthly, regular routine, haven't they? Absolutely. So I do... Um, some sort of emotional session every week because um, we are all onions and you peel back one layer and bah, there's another one and it'll, <laughs> keep, it'll keep making you cry. Don't you worry. That's what onions do. But uh, I, I, you know, I deal with all of that stuff because I don't like to stay stuck. And my professional surfing career, there was too many moments when I was stuck and I stayed stuck for too long. Um, and then that's when you start falling into the blame game. Um, or John D. Martini refers to the ABCDs and negativity. You get angry, you know, you're angry with life and you're angry with others. And then you start blaming external circumstances for your disappointments and your setbacks and it's all everybody else's fault. And then you become really critical of it. And then you're left in a state of despair and disappointment and depression. And it's a really uncomfortable place to find yourself, but it becomes like this circle of events that just continues to repeat itself time and time again and you wonder what's going on and then all of a sudden you break it and you have a moment of success and then you fall back into that pattern and um and it's a really difficult thing to break and you can't break it without that that sense of self-awareness that sense of accountability and personal ownership and then also um taking the time to look in the mirror and being your own honesty barometer that's a real courageous thing to do. I love the phrase honesty barometers and you're definitely one of my honesty barometers. And I'm intrigued hearing you talk about self-work. I guess I wonder about the role that mentors have played in this part of your life. You know, have they been really core to opening up this material to you, to holding your hand through it, encouraging you to embrace some of this challenging work? Yeah, well, you know, I love to talk about the fact that we all go through stuff. You know, we all have hard times. We all have adversities and challenges, but a lot of us, tend to bury it. It's almost like showing signs of vulnerability is a weakness and that we don't want to expose that aspect of ourselves because we have to find ourselves as people who have it all together. But there's been times when we don't have it all together. And unless we're actually willing to either look in the mirror and say, Lane, you don't have it together today. You need to get it together. What do you have to do? There's very few of us that actually have the capacity to own up to that. Mm. So that's when you those honesty barometers, those mentors, those guiding lights in your life that calls you on it and say, hey, you know, things aren't looking too good for you right now and you need to talk about it because you're not going to get through it without sharing it um, and then let me help you through it. And so, yeah, I've had lots of mentors just walk into my life and I've also um, looked it's, I've sought counsel for certain things in my life. I remember even when I retired, I felt lost. I felt like I lost my identity and my sense of belonging, that sense of structure that you have when you have a professional career. 
And I didn't speak about it for months until I went to this event just down at the local rugby league club. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot of girls there who are retired ex-professional athletes or dancers or ex-professionals. And I said, and they asked me, how are you going? And I said, yeah, I feel lost. And they went, that's good. That's normal. I wish I called you about three months ago. <laughs> yeah, that would have been helpful. So you and I are very similar, Holly, is we're, we're very cognitive, right? And we, we're always trying to figure <laughs> which is sabotage in itself. And until we actually stop and allow, that's when you become open and that's when you start to create the space around what's actually going on in your life and then you can actually start to respond. But as, as long as you're trying to figure things out, then you're still in that controlling state and uh, it takes a lot longer to get there. Doesn't it? Don't you just wish sometimes the universe would conform to our timeline? <laughs> You know, you've you've picked your mentors, um, and I, and I'm sure you have a, a a definitive outline of what it is that you you wish to experience, and and the kind of people that you are willing to open up to, um, and we all have those standards, and you talk about those beautifully about like standards that you said are the ones in which you live by and unfortunately we continue to walk past our own pain and suffering, and therefore we've just become comfortable in that discomfort, so we just allow it to. Just mm. bubble underneath the surface for that little bit too long. And it's not until, fortunately, we've picked our mentors very well. Fortunate to call you one of mine. And so to having having those honesty barometers in our lives that we can call each other on our stuff is really important because it helps you get through it a lot faster. And then once you get through it, you've become a lot, what, a lot more happier, a lot, lot more comfortable, a lot more aware. I mean, the growth is exponential. But sometimes we just fear that, don't we? I think that's pretty bang on. Now, it would be remiss of me not to talk to you about resilience. And I've done a little bit of fact finding and collated my Lane Beachley uh, resilience list. So uh, if I'm right, you won your third world title with a broken back. You've battled chronic fatigue twice. Um, you mentioned already that you've competed with a torn meniscus, that you managed to do a herniated disc. And I also know, and I don't want to make light of this spiny mm -hmm. stretch, that you've gone through a really challenging period of depression and even suicidal thoughts. What did you do to get through that? What, what coping skills and habits and techniques did you rely on to be able to cope? I'd have to say my model for success is what's enabled me to get through all of those things. So first is having that clear vision of what it is that I want to achieve. Today, my vision is set in a very different way. Back then as an athlete, my vision was to become the best of the best. And now I realize that the prerequisite to establishing a vision needs to be how you want to feel more so than what it is you want to achieve. I like that. Because I now realize upon reflection that by achieving that success, what I really wanted to feel was deserving of love. And the limitation I had placed on it was that the only way I was going to be deserving of love was when I became the most successful surfer in history. So having a really clearly articulated vision helped, helped me overcome a lot of those challenges because my desire to succeed, my desire to grow, my desire to bounce back and learn is much more dominant in my life than my fear of failure and my willingness to stay stuck, right? So my desire yeah. to grow and improve and learn is what propels me forward. And there's, of course, there's days when I'm exhausted and I don't feel like growing. I don't feel like learning. Sure, I don't yeah. feel like doing anything different. And I acknowledge that that's okay and I don't stay there for very long. Every one of us has those days. So that's, that's the main thing is my clarity of vision. The second piece to the puzzle is having that dream team of mentors, guides, 
guidance um, experts, you know, people that you surround yourself with that that elevate you, nurture you, develop you, um, challenge you, are very honest with you. So if I didn't have those people that I had that respect and trust and regard for, um, then I would never have been have I would never would have been courageous enough to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I had chronic fatigue the second time, you didn't think what I'd learned from the first time, but obviously <laughs> again. Um, and that was the that was the, probably one of the deepest, darkest times in my life because that's when I did have depression and I was suicidal and I and it was very disconcerting to wake up thinking of different ways to kill myself for someone such a lover of life and so sprightly. Yeah. Um, it was a really dark period and and I couldn't navigate my own way through it. So I put my hand up and asked for help from a friend who I knew had been through a circumstance or a situation that was quite similar and her response was what took you so long you know (laughs) when the student's ready the teacher will appear and I wasn't ready I wasn't ready to to own my shit I wasn't ready to own my misery I wasn't really ready to recognize that I was in a really bad state and I wasn't willing to do anything about it so basically I was like I was just stuck in a life of hope I was hoping things would change I was hoping things would get better I was hoping somebody might recognize that I need help um, and so as long as you stay stuck in a life of hope, you're deferring dissatisfaction. And when you defer dissatisfaction, you're deferring action. And so because dissatisfaction is a precursor to positive change and the only antidote to fear is action. And I wasn't taking any, you know. Yeah. So um, that dream team of people knowing that they're always there for you is great, but you've also got to have the courage to reach up. So that's the final piece of the puzzle is the the risk that you've got to take. The action always seems like risk because you haven't taken it before or it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And like you beautifully say, you've got to expand your comfort zone, um, your courage zone. So it starts mm. to take some some space out of your comfort zone. And, and so I got to that point where I knew I had to start taking action. Um, and you can't delay the action for too long. Otherwise, you stop winning at life and you keep losing. Now, I don't know if it's something that's intertwined with what you just talked about, but it's certainly something I imagine you had to contend with a lot over the course of your career, which is an incredibly high pressure and expectation. And I'm intrigued to know how it is you handled that. How did you cope with the pressure, the expectation, people expecting you to be the absolute world's best? Well, initially I coped with it very poorly. So um, I've also realized that no one can place more expectation on your shoulders than you. You know, when I look back at that period, I was always saying, you know, the world expects me to achieve this, but no one expects you to achieve it. Everyone just wants to see you happy. Everyone just wants to see you fulfill your potential and everyone wants to see you be satisfied in life and whatever definition that is for you, then go after it and I'm going to support you to do it. I'm going to challenge you a little bit, but you don't have to be a world beater to be successful. Uh, But I just placed that level of expectation on my shoulders. The first few years, I cracked under my own pressure. I used to crumble under pressure. I'd, I would trash talk my competitors and go out and lose to them and then wonder why I was so disappointed. <laughs> Vicious cycle. I was set myself up for failure. In fact, I think I've seen you say somewhere that you spent eight years failing before you finally won. I did. I spent eight years failing to learn how to win. And it wasn't until I won my first world title that I realised, yes, I had a fear of success and, yes, I placed an immense amount, an unrealistic amount of expectation on my own shoulders. And then... I started dating a guy called Ken Bradshaw who also wanted me to win as much for me as it was for him. And so I was so addicted to his validation that whenever I lost, I would burst into tears because I felt like I'd let him down. So 
my competitors thought I was a sore loser, but they didn't realize what was going on in my head, that I was deeply distressed because Ken was so invested in me that I didn't want to let him down. Sure. So I actually started winning my world titles for him versus winning them for me. And that's a, it's a really <laughs> interesting dance you have when you have a coach and a mentor and a lover and, you know, he was everything to me that uh, you don't want to disappoint. Um, and that's why I see kids crack under the pressure when they don't want to disappoint their parents, you know, because you see these people who are so invested in you and want so much for you and that you think you have to be more than that. And that's why you get second that second championship syndrome. You know, very few people can back it up year after year after year because of the amount of pressure they put on themselves that becomes unrealistic burden. Now, you're someone that's applied goal setting pretty prolifically over the course of your life, I'd say. And I remember you telling me a fabulous story about the success that you'd had with a particular goal-setting exercise that you'd done with a, a list you'd written down that you managed to tick off. Uh, what, what list were you referring to, Holly? The one where you said the house you were going to have and the car and the, the whole shebang. I did a self-help course back in 97, well before I won my first world title. And I had to, I had to write what would my ideal life look like in five years' time. And you actually have to just think outside the box and allow yourself, give yourself permission to create the life of your dreams. What does it look like? Where will you be living? Who will you be with? And so I actually I wrote this full dissertation about the fact that I was going to be, and this is in five years, projected into five years' time, so I was from 97 to 2001, I was going to be, by May 2001, I was going to be a multiple-time world champion. I was going to be uh, training to become a motivational speaker while also doing some TV commentary and, and sports reporting. I was going to be living in a house on the beachfront that had uh, big, bright lights or big, you know, um, big windows to allow natural light and sunlight in front of a perfect surf spot. I'd be married to a husband who surfed. I'd have a blue four-wheel drive. I had all these things lined up. And I found it ten years like ten years ago, ten years later. And when I read it, I looked into the carport and I had a four, a blue four wheel drive parked <laughs> in my driveway. I was living in my dream home. I didn't marry the surfer. I ended up dropping Ken and married married a rock star, um, Kirk, who's a rock star. And I I did some sports reporting. I'm I am now a motivational speaker. And by 2001, I just claimed I was on my way to winning my fourth consecutive world title. Wow. So it's amazing when you give yourself permission to dream and have, have these these hairy audacious goals that you put down on paper, which increases your likelihood of success by 39%. When you give yourself permission to think like that, it's amazing that that you then start to visualize it and the power of visualization is what actually is the game changer. Because when you start to visualize it, you, you're actually reducing the incidence of sabotage and, and you're telling the universe very clearly, this is exactly what I want. And when you know exactly what you want, you can actually manifest it. But mostly time, when I ask people what they want, they start by saying, I can tell you what I don't want. And when you put that out there, you're going to get a whole lot more of it. I mean, if that's not a commercial for goal setting, I genuinely don't know what is. I think that's a, an amazing story. So talk to me about life post-surfing. Uh, as you mentioned, you're now a motivational speaker, one of the country's best. You run your own foundation, Lane Beachley Aim for the Stars Foundation. You're, you're president and chairwoman of Surfing Australia, which very excitingly is going to become an Olympic sport in Tokyo. How easy did you find the transition 
to life post surfing? Was it easy to find your feet on land? Well, the first thing I did is I found my feet barefoot in the kitchen because all I wanted to do was bake and um, found that that really didn't light my fire. You know, it didn't really replace the euphoric experience of standing on a podium holding a world title trophy above my head being sprayed <laughs> with champagne. So I had to be realistic about my expectations as to what I was going to experience outside of surfing um, and, uh, and then embrace that. And so, like I said, it took me three or four months to navigate my way around that. I remember I went to this event. John Singleton invited me to a Blue Tongue Brewery launch, and I thought my dad would love that, so I'll take my dad. And, of course, Kirk would love that. What rock star doesn't drink beer? So I took my dad and, and Kirk off to this launch, and and afterwards um, John was asking me, what are you up to in life? I said, yeah, I don't know. I've kind of lost my mojo. I've lost my passion. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry you have no passion in your life. Oh, man. And I went, Oh, that hurts. <laughs> but you're, tr- you're totally right, John. You know, I have a lot going on in my life. Because at the time, when I retired, I had my own clothing brand. I was staging the richest surfing event in the world. I had my own charity and I was speaking and I sat on a couple of other boards. So, I mean, there was so much going on, but none of it, none of it excited me. None of it was really what I was really into. Yeah. And one by one, bit by bit, I had to sever the cord, you know, cut the umbilical cord and let it go. You know, like the clothing brand was the first one. Then the um, the surf event after seven years, I decided to let that go. It achieved everything that I wanted it to achieve. So I've obviously held on to the foundation, but the motivational speaking and the workshops that I deliver is what lights me up. And, and it, that's been a 10-year evolution. You know, I think about the first motivational speech I ever gave I actually received a formal written complaint no so that's how good I was yeah that's how great I was when I started speaking (laughs) so you know all those um, motivational quotes about don't wait till the moment's perfect just get out there and do it I'm really glad I've continued to just get out there and do it because continue to strive for perfectionism will actually never do anything and I think about the speech that I give now versus the speeches I gave 10 years ago and they're totally different they're two different worlds but I have learnt from every single one of them and because I'm reading the audience I'm thinking no this isn't working okay I need to drop that content and bring in something new so we're always evolving we're always learning we're always absorbing I learn a lot from watching you and 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 speaking with you and, and my other mentors as well so I'm always tapping into the knowledge and experience of other people but never discrediting or discounting my own and how important and valuable my knowledge is. But the thing is sometimes we don't value our knowledge and we just regurgitate other people's wisdom. I think you're right. You know, we so often feel trapped by expectation and pressure and what people presume we should do. That's it. And and the thing is, is that when I retired, I knew that life was going to be different. And one of the best pieces of advice I received was from um, a former executive of Quicksilver who said, schedule your week around the surf forecast. Which you legitimately do. <laughs> Which I do, yes, because I've cancelled this thing twice now to go surfing. Hey, so. I'm aware of the life structure and format. <laughs> I was prepared for that. <laughs> My happy place is the ocean. And for me to inspire and empower people in an authentic measure, or authentic way, I have to inspire and empower myself, and the one place I can do that is in nature. So uh, if I have time to immerse myself in the ocean or in nature, I make sure I do it. Yeah, but see, I love that about you because I think so many people talk about the idea of doing that. They talk about how we need to prioritise ourselves and nourishing and, you know, all of that, but very few people actually structure their life that way. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I, I spoke at a conference up in the Sunshine Coast last year and I got there early. And then I had about an hour and a half to fill and I had my board in the back of the car and I said, I'm just going to duck off for a surf. So 
I had all my hair and makeup done. And I thought, I've just got to get in the water. So I ran down the beach and had a surf and I came back. There was still sand between my toes when I got up on stage. <laughs> a little bit of salt water still on my face because I didn't have a shower. I had to pull my water bottle over my head. You can get away with that, though, surfy chick. No, and I take full advantage of that. So for those yeah. who are listening who are eager to connect with you, to get more involved in what you're doing or get more information, what's the best way for them to reach out and to connect? So the best thing to do is go to my website, lambeachley.com. And subscribe to my newsletter and you can always contact me directly through that. And then if you want to get involved with Aim for the Stars, they can jump on to aimforthestars.com.au because we're all about empowering young women to become the future leaders of this world. We're all about supporting girls on the way up, not waiting till they get there before we start to believe in them. And um, cultivating courage and fostering self-belief in young girls and women to achieve their dreams. I should make mention of the fact here that the Foundation's whole reason for being has a very personal connection to your own story and experience. Tell us a little bit uh, about why this foundation matters so much to you. Yeah, so the core premise behind Aim for the Stars was born out of reflection. Like I was number two in the world working 60 hours a week in four different jobs, earning $8,000 a year, and it was all very hard. I was ready to quit. Actually, I almost did several times. And after one of the night shifts that I used to work, one of my employers saw how hard I was working. He basically sat me down after work at three o'clock in the morning and said, I see how hard you're working. I hear how much you want this. And I I believe in you. And here's $3,000. He's your next round the world air ticket. Wow. Right. So it was such a, a catalyst moment to make me realize, you know, I was ready to quit last week. And now you've you've reinvigorated my confidence just by saying that I see you, I hear you, I believe in you, here's some cash. And it was more the words than the cash, but, of yeah. course, the cash went a long way at that point because now I could actually afford to sleep in accommodation in Hawaii in the next last year of events as opposed to sleeping in my board bag in contest areas, which is what I used to do. Wow, I had no idea of that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you'd be surprised at how we made ends meet, but but we did everything that we possibly could because we were earning, I mean, I would have to pay um, an entry fee to go to an event. So the old manly boat shed started paying for my entry fees. Um, and then there was no guarantee I'd earn prize money until I'd made it through the main rounds. And then I'd get through those rounds and I'd come up against the number one seed in the world, or the world champion, and have to beat her to then earn $1,000. Wow. Um, and then if I won the event, I think I may have walked away with about $6,000 if I was lucky. So there was an enormous amount of money in it. And I know my event has actually changed how the world tour um, pays. Which is an incredible credit to you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm really um, proud of that legacy because uh, I wanted to leave the sport in a better place than I found it, which wasn't, it wasn't in a great place when I found it, quite honestly. But so the reason that Aim for the Stars started was that I realized that if I granted a girl $3,000 and told her I believed in her, it will prevent her from quitting. I've always had a strong work ethic. I always knew that if surfing didn't work out for me, I'd go back to working in a bar or a restaurant or I don't know, I'd go back to school. I don't know. There was other opportunities that I didn't I didn't hang my hook on them and, and have a plan B. I just knew that in the, in the event that after I'd committed myself wholly to this, if it didn't work out, I was willing to accept that yep. and then go on and do something different. But I wasn't willing to allow circumstances such as lack of financial support to prevent me from achieving my dreams. And there was a couple of times when I almost did, but that's when someone saw it in me and said, here you go, kid, here's three grand, here's Hmm. your next round the world air ticket, or here you go, I believe in you, you've got what it takes. So get out of your own way and get on with it. 
And I should just say, it's incredible to see the way that you've paid that forward. The ripple effect this foundation has created. Um, we meet girls year in, year out who have won gold medals because of the foundation support. Mentoring has changed their life, their ability to get an idea off the ground. It's an absolute credit to you what you've built with Aim for the Stars. It's remarkable. Thank you. And I'm really grateful for your contribution too on the board and as a mentor to some of the girls because you've made an indelible impact on their lives. And, I mean, Kate Rowe said it all. You know, she still got her book of notes from her mentoring session with Holly Ransom <laughs> and she still for them. So you just don't know how long your words are going to sit with somebody and I know how long my words of hurt have sat with people. So now I want to change that and make sure that the words that I'm sharing with the world are positive and reinforcing and uplifting. Lane, I'm so appreciative of your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Two final questions before we go. For those who are seeking to be the absolute best in whatever their field of chosen endeavour is, what's the, the best bit of advice that you'd give them for how to do that? Be clear on how you want to feel. You know, our lives are so guided well, we're, we're almost dictated to by society about what we want, what we're meant to do, and when we're actually there's no, there's very little positive reinforcement in society <laughs> about you know every magazine you read, you've got to own more, be more, do more. <laughs> I don't know, you you're never enough, no matter what you do. The best piece of advice I can give anybody is is choose to be enough in who you are, mm. and then start to wrestle with that and challenge yourself and ask yourself, how do you want to feel? Like my vision for myself today and every day is to wake up excited about the day ahead. Nice. Now, I know that there's going to be costs associated with that. I'm not always going to wake up excited, especially tomorrow when I wake up in Canberra, but I'm excited by the opportunity of the fact I get to share my knowledge and experiences and wisdom with, with audiences. Um, so I'm grateful for that. So I'm willing to... I'm willing to accept that there's costs associated with achieving that feeling of elation and excitement. So that way, if I if I'm clear on what it, on how it is I want to feel, then I will go to those extreme lengths of flying from another state via Sydney to have a surf before I come to Canberra, which you actually did today. <laughs> so the best piece of advice I can yeah I can give people is be really clear on how you want to feel. Final question. Uh, what's your call to arms, call to action for the people that are listening to this podcast? Once you've decided how you want to feel, and that can start with even asking yourself, because a lot of people go ask me, how do I find my passion? How do I find my purpose? And you can answer that simply by saying, what, asking yourself, what excites me? Then the call to action is to share that with somebody because we all need accountability partners to achieve in life. And unfortunately, we can talk ourselves out of our greatest ideas and our yeah. greatest forms of inspiration because we think it won't work or we, we talk ourselves out of it because we start comparing ourselves to others because that leads to a sense of inadequacy. So it's really important that if you once you've got some clarity around how you want to feel and what excites you, then the next step is to share that with someone and put them another foot in front of another foot in front of another foot and just keep stepping towards it because <laughs> there's no such thing as perfection. You're an absolute legend, Lane Beachley. I can't thank you enough for joining us on Coffee Pods and making the time. Uh, I feel really grateful to be able to call you a friend and mentor and an honesty barometer. And I know that you're an inspiration, not just to me, but to so many people out there. You know, I've got such admiration for the depths, the breadths, the heights of the accolades and the accomplishments you've achieved. But for me, more than anything, it's the fact that you are absolutely authenticity personified. You're so honest and real. 
Well, and I can't thank you enough for sharing so generously today. Thanks, Holly, and thanks for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and gifts with the world too. I'm so grateful to have you in my circle of friends. I love that conversation with Lane. I think that was a fascinating insight into the mindset of a champion, of someone who's been able to not just get to the best in the world, but to sustain that level of success and who's been so prepared to challenge themselves, to go on the journey of self-learning, to confront themselves with different perspectives and disciplines. And I think some of the advice on everything from how to deal with challenge through to goal setting is really pragmatic and useful for each and every one of us to think about how we can apply to our own lives. If you enjoyed the conversation, feel free, if you want to connect with Lane or get any more information, to head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com where you can get all the show notes and links to everything you might need. If you've got any feedback, love to know what you thought about the Coffee Pod with Lane, shoot us a tweet at Holly Ransom uh, or feel free to jump on Insta too at Holly underscore Ransom. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thank you for listening.